0: everyone welcome back to in apologetics as always we're brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash apologetics today i'm joined by Doctor. braxton hunter you may know who he is if you know apologetics he hosts trinity radio the president of trinity seminary uh braxton welcome how are you doing
1: doing great thanks for having me on the channel man this has been a long time coming and i'm honored to be here
0: yeah i'm really pumped to have you on you have one of the fastest growing youtube apologetics channels you just hit 10,000 subscribers so congrats uh so just, just for people who may not know who you are, can you talk about like who you are, what you do, like what's going on with Trinity Radio and everything?
1: Yeah, so um, for YouTube purposes, as you said, I, I'm the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, and if you're just a layperson, or if you do want to go into ministry of some sort, then we offer courses and, and stuff like that, and you can do it right from home. If you have the technology to watch this video right now, you have everything you need, and um, you can visit us at trinitysem.edu, trinitysem.edu, and I hope you will. Um, but, uh, putting that aside for YouTube purposes, our channel is kind of a response channel. It's primarily geared toward atheists. Um, although we've talked about all the different major world religions and uh, cults of Christianity and things like that, but primarily it's geared toward atheists and, um, the atheist, atheist YouTube, uh, crowd. And so we do response videos to videos that atheists will put out. YouTube is just dominated with atheism. And so we felt like we needed there to be. Uh, good responses that people can understand and that they can take and use to the sorts of things that they'll hear from atheists on YouTube. And God's really blessed that. We've seen a lot of people come to Christ through that ministry, and we get messages like that every day. And um, so just this morning, I, I had one of our patrons um, messaged me and said that her son is an atheist, and she was sending him the video that I posted this morning. So, um, you know, God uses this sort of thing, and this is a way that we can impact the world, and we should be grateful we live in a time where these sorts of resources are possible
0: yeah it's so much great stuff happening over at trinity radio I want to welcome everyone who's joining us roxby susan the program everyone else um but i'm curious like a lot of universities don't have like a youtube like apologetics channel like i know i go to like liberty at christian university we don't have anything like that so like what interested you guys in starting like trinity radio
1: Well, actually, Trinity Radio started before I had any official position at the seminary. I was in full-time evangelism and apologetics work, but I was serving kind of as a recruiter for Trinity Seminary. Um, kind of an unofficial sort of position, and I started Trinity Radio because people knew of me because they knew that I was doing some work to push people to the school, so I started a podcast just uh, in my attic just by myself back in like 2009, and and over the years, it just developed, and when I became a professor here, I continued it, and Jonathan Pritchett, my co-host, he's our vice president of academic affairs. He jumped on back in 2015, 2014, something like that, And then uh, when we decided to move it to YouTube, that's when things really started to pop. So it's actually not technically directly affiliated with our school. uh, But uh, so I guess that's kind of answers your question. That's kind of how it happened. I'm into apologetics. And so I have a a channel that's related to apologetics. And since I work at a school called Trinity, we just tied it all up together in a boat.
0: Looks pretty nice, if, if I say so myself. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the argument um, from free will. We're going to be talking about like why I think we have free will, how it connects to God, talking about objections, all sorts of stuff. So I'm curious, like what got you interested in like the argument from free will? And like what is it, in case someone doesn't know who it is? Though it sounds pretty simple, you would think.
1: Yeah, so um, I, for several years, I was more interested. So I, I've been into apologetics since the early 2000s, but um, somewhere toward the end of the, of the, of the thousands, you know, the end of, of, uh, before we got into 2011, 2012 I guess until probably about 2013, I had gotten into, uh, internal theological discussions with Calvinists. And Calvinists mm-hmm. are Christians who believe in, they would say they believe in free will, but they believe in a different understanding of free will. They believe in what's called compatibilism. And maybe we'll get into what those definitions mean in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so uh, they, they ultimately believe in determinism, that, that, um, that whatever you end up doing, um, it could not have been otherwise. And uh, that, you're, that, that the choices you make are in at least some sense determined by things outside of you. Um, perhaps God determines those things through secondary causes. Well, atheist naturalists uh, believe in determinism, although they don't believe that God is determining things. They believe that just the you know cold, hard universe is determining things. Um, the, the past history of the universe is like a chain of dominoes uh, that led to your ultimately your parents and then your birth and the formation of your neural structure and the firings of neurons such that what we call your choices um, and they are your choices, but they could not have been otherwise. So while you feel like you're free to choose other than whatever you end up choosing, in the most basic sense, you're not. And that couldn't have been otherwise. And so uh I, I was arguing with Calvinist Christians who are determinists for several years. And I have four debates on that subject, two live public on stage debates with Calvinists that are on this channel or on my channel and on our website at uh, TrinityRadio.org. And uh but I but I got really convicted at some point, Braxton, you're you want to be an evangelist, you want to be someone who reaches people for Christ. And as interesting and important as these doctrinal issues are, I wanted to see people who didn't know Christ come to know him for the first time. But I had put all this study into this Calvinism stuff, like years of study. So I said, Lord, in fact, in this room that I'm in right now, I was right on the floor. I can see where I was, and I was praying. And I said, Lord, if there's a way that the stuff that I've learned for the Calvinism discussions could be helpful with atheists, with reaching atheists. Would you just please make that clear to me? And um, I can't convince anyone of this. This is my own personal experience. But almost in that moment, it occurred to me that William Lane Craig's moral argument and William Lane Craig's moral argument is uh, um, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. And so it occurred to me that, hey, that would work really well with free will, especially if someone already believes in free will. Uh, They don't have to already believe in it for the argument to work, but it sure is helpful if they already do, and a lot of people do. And so I thought you could say, and so here's the argument, if God does not exist, then libertarian freedom does not exist and that's a particular kind of freedom. It's the type of freedom that most people think they have probably without ever thinking too much about it. um, That whatever I ended up doing, I could have done something else when I raised my hand up like this, I could have just as easily raised the other hand, you know, those kind of things. And, And at the very least that nothing external to you determined what you would end up doing. Most people sense that they have that sort of free. I think now I've got friends like Chris State and Tyler Vela who don't agree with me on that, but I think most people since they have something like that and so um and so premise one um if god does not exist then libertarian freedom does not exist premise two libertarian freedom does exist and therefore three god exists and so what you do then is is you defend those premises and uh get to that conclusion and i use this debate most um notably in my debate with matt dillahunty last year But um, I also used a lot of the same reasoning when I debated Dan Barker of the Freedom From Religion Foundation just a couple of months ago. So that's the argument. And, uh, of course, there's a lot of details and specifics you can get into with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really fun argument to kind of look at. I remember um – Listening to the Dilla Honey debate and it's like, you know, if you listen to like Craig's debates or most debates, it's like a cosmological argument and a moral argument. But a free will argument really complements them if you believe in it, it's something different and something interesting. So uh, I think it'd be helpful just to define our terms for a second. You believe in like libertarian freedom, So like what is libertarian freedom? How does it differ between like compatibilism or determinism like the two other really players in this debate?
1: Yeah. So the way I do it is I say like this. So you've got on when you're when people are talking about philosophers, theologians, when people are talking about free will, there are basically only two options. There is libertarian freedom, which uh, people define differently, but I say it like this libertarian freedom is um, may include the ability to have done other than whatever you ended up doing. Right. When I look at an action I just took, I really could have done otherwise. Like I can't do anything about it now, now that I did it. But I, in the moment, I could have done something other than whatever I ended up doing. But at the very least, what it what it must include is that nothing external to the agent, external to me, determined what I would do, such such that it had to be that way. So, um, so that's important uh, to 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 note for libertarian freedom. And as I say, I think this is the type of freedom that most people just assume they have uh, most of the time. On the other hand, you've got determinism, and determinism is the idea that um, that free will in that sense the libertarian sense doesn't exist it's not a thing it, it, it either either it's not even possible or at the very least we don't have it um and uh so determinism as i said before is like the is like the past history of the universe is like a chain of dominoes uh leading to everything that ends up happening it's like one domino leading to another thing right on down the line especially when we're talking about naturalistic determinism that atheists hold to so that Uh, you you know, you, you couldn't control that you were born or the family that you were born into or the influences that would come on you. And, um, so as a result of that, all of this that happens in your life from your biology and genetics to the things that you experience lead to unchangeably the, what we call the choices that you will make. But even though you feel like you could have done otherwise, even though you feel like when you did this, you could have just as easily have done this, you really couldn't, it was determined and it was going to be that way, um, since the beginning of the universe and so that's um, so that that's determinism. Now you mentioned compatibilism, and there are Christians and there are atheists who are compatibilists. In fact, um, I have it right here in front of me: fifty-nine point one percent of philosophers and graduate students working in philosophy today take the position of compatibilism. Well, then why could I say that there's only two options: libertarian freedom or determinism? Well, because compatibilism is determinism. It's a form of it's a way of thinking about determinism that says, look whatever, uh, like, this is the way to think about it. So you have, so you, Zach, you are free. The compatibilist would say you're free in the sense that you can do whatever you want to do. You can do whatever you want. And what more do you want than the freedom to do whatever you want? But the wants that you have are out of your control. And those are the things that drive your actions. And so as a result, it's still determinism because whatever you want that you couldn't control drives whatever you do. So it's still an unbroken, causal, deterministic chain. Uh, But even though that's true, since you're doing what you want to do, we can call that free will. Now, the people that know what they're talking about with this will still say, no, that's determinism. That's that's still determinism. And if you'll talk to like a Christian Calvinist like uh, Guillaume Bignon, who wrote probably the most popular book on how we're still able to be morally responsible for our actions, even if we have that, um, he, he will say yeah compatibilism is determinism if you talk to someone uh, like uh, Daniel Dennett who's an atheist compatibilism is still determinism so that I'm not trying to be tricky with that that is the way it is but that's the spread so you've got libertarian freedom and determinism and then some people that hold to determinism talk about it in the terms of compatibilism because it allows for the use of uh, the language of freedom and they would say it is a form of freedom
0: mm-hmm. well, thank you um So we're going to talk about like three arguments that you have for for free will. I know in that survey that you mentioned, I think it's only about like 18 percent of philosophers who believed in libertarian freedom, if I remember right. Um, I could be wrong there. So you might be you might be in a little bit of a minority position here. So I'm curious, like with these three arguments, maybe just start with one and we can talk about it. Like why I think we have libertarian freedom.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like you're familiar with this study that was done. Everybody points to this study uh, because it was it was a pretty you know it was a pretty wide study. It was done by David Chalmers and David Burgett. and what they found was before I answer your question directly is that like I said, um, views on free will among philosophers and graduate students, um, uh, three thousand professors they found that 59.1% affirmed compatibilism, 137 affirmed libertarian freedom. Now that is the minority, but that's still a substantial number of philosophers oh, yeah. and graduate students. Um, and then no free will 12.2 and then other 14.9, which probably means they weren't very clear. In other words, one in seven of them believe in libertarian freedom, but here's the important thing to keep in mind. You're right. It is a minority position in this study, but this study, um, of those studied were atheists and 49.8% of those studied were atheist naturalists. So uh, basically what you're finding out there is if you study mostly atheist professors and philosophy students, guess what you're going to find? You're going to find that most of them don't believe in libertarian freedom, although some of them do. But then if you study, um, if you look at like Scientific America did a study and they came up with 59 point something percent of their readers believed in uh, libertarian freedom. So that would be Um, That would kind of tell you that, okay, so the average population seems more inclined toward libertarian freedom. But if you get a bunch of atheist philosophers together, of course, they're not going to overwhelmingly believe in libertarian freedom. So, really, there's no surprise there, I think. And it actually backs up premise one of my argument, which is that if God, if you take God out of the equation, if God does not exist, libertarian freedom is less likely or does not exist. So, okay, by that point now, I think I forgot your question. Were you asking me the arguments for, (laughs) for free will?
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about it. You have like three arguments. I figured we could kind of walk through these one by one. Um, So wherever you want to start with like arguments for free will.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, what you do there is you say, okay, so premise two of the argument is where a lot of the action happens. Um, In fact, to this day, I've never really had many people challenge premise one that if God does not exist, libertarian freedom does not exist. Mm -hmm. Um, But premise two uh, libertarian freedom does exist. Um, And I want to say again, that the person for whom this argument is going to be most compelling are going to be people who are not like your YouTube atheist person or an atheist philosopher, but are going to be everyday people that you know who already believe in libertarian freedom. So you can just show them how it gets you to God. But for those that would challenge premise two, um, what the first thing is the least satisfying to most people, even though I think it's, it's powerful. So I'll start with the least compelling reason. So uh, the first argument that I would raise is, okay, If libertarian freedom does not exist, then rational affirmations are impossible. Rational, and then premise two, rational affirmations are possible. Therefore, uh, libertarian freedom exists. Now, what we mean by this, and those in your audience who've listened to Tim Stratton talk before um, have maybe heard this sort of thinking about this. But what we want to say here is, all right, look, rationality, um, the reason that we are justified in claiming knowledge of certain things, like that I'm on a stream with you right now. Um, the reason we can claim to know certain things is because of because there is a process of rationality that's gone on when we're, dis- when we're doing decision-making and deciding what we will believe. Rationality is a process by which we look at the available data for a particular thing and choose whether or not we should affirm this or we should affirm that. So uh, that's a process and it involves free will. You have to be able to choose against the wrong thing you have to be able to assess the options and freely choose against the wrong thing to choose the right thing so that you're justified in claiming that you know something that you know a particular thing. but for instance if a person comes to believe that he is a brilliant atheist scientist and then person B comes to believe that he's a pink unicorn um, well if neither if, if free will does not exist, well, then they both got to those conclusions via a deterministic mes- uh, method that was completely outside of their control. So why mm-hmm. does the guy who thinks he's the brilliant atheist scientist have any reason to conclude that he's correct? I mean, he was just he's just believing whatever he was determined to believe. He just finds himself believing these things in a certain sense. So here's um, heres I, I know I'm kind of running off at the mouth, but I'll give you this. Yeah. Um, analogy that Tim gives that I think is really great. It really helps people to understand exactly what we're saying. So let's imagine that you and I are looking at a, a, a third person and we happen to know about that third person, that everything that they are doing, saying, and thinking is being controlled by a mad scientist. And we don't know the intentions of that mad scientist. That mad scientist Uh, May may want the person to believe wrong things. We don't know. May want them to believe right things. But the person isn't reasoning to those things, even though the person feels like they are. The mad scientist is deciding what they're going to believe, what they're going to think, and the next words that are going to come out of their mouth. Now, do we have any reason to believe this person is rationally justified in anything that they conclude? Well, of course not, because they don't know the motivations of that mad scientist. How do they know that whatever they end up believing is anywhere close to correct? when everything that they're believing has been put in their head by the mad scientist. Well, it's actually worse than that for the atheist who believes in determinism, because whatever they end up believing, even though they feel like they went through a process of reason, if they weren't free to choose against bad things and choose the right things, the true things, or the things most likely to be true, then it's just the blind forces of nature that brought them to that point. So it's even worse than a mad scientist. So uh, for that reason, you can't have, and I don't think there's any good way to escape this argument, you cannot have rational justification for anything. You can't, um, you can't, you you can't know that you're right. You can't, and therefore you can't have knowledge claims. And so what a person would then need to do is the atheist determinist would need to go home and sit around and think for a while and figure out how he can have justified knowledge claims, because then at least he would know something. So that, that's how, that's, that's one argument uh, that I think um, is powerful. And we do, I think we all know that we have, that we're able to make justified knowledge claims. And so I think that's powerful. But even if you didn't think we, if you, even if you're like, well, okay, but maybe we just aren't able to make justified knowledge claims. Well, then at that point, go home because it's over. There's no point in arguing about it because nothing we're saying are are things we know
0: i think one like kind of objection that can be raised to this argument you bring up is maybe like a pragmatist approach to this like you say hey maybe our choices aren't free then maybe they're determined but it seems like they work you know like obviously um, man has enough knowledge to understand astrophysics and get to the moon so even if our choices are determined um and it may be an irrational in a sense they still work um they'd apply it to reality so it wouldn't be like this like throw everything up and burn all the papers in the fire and go crazy because, you know, even if it's determined things are still working just fine. So how would you respond to like that kind of response to um, this argument?
1: Well, what I'd say to that sort of thing is, okay, you think that it's working, but the only reason you believe that you built a rocket that took you to the moon is because you were determined to believe that. Remember, there are people out there who are, it's just like some people will object to this argument by saying, well, you know, um, the, the, the thing about it is I can get with other people and those other people can confer with me and we can, and I can check sort of what I've concluded off of what they came to as well. But of course, the only reason that, but they're trusting first of all, your belief that they're confirming what you're saying is something you were determined to believe. And there are people in mental facilities right now who think all kinds of other people are confirming their beliefs that they're a pink unicorn or whatever. And so, um, so, so that's that. But then also even the people confirming your belief, they too are only coming to the conclusions they are because they were determined to get there. Now, a related issue that might help with that, the understanding of that answer is to say something like this. So, um, In my debate with Matt Dillahunty, he challenged me by saying, look, you could take something like a a calculator, which is a completely deterministic device that gives you deterministic outputs. It's not reasoning. None of us think that it's going through a process of reason. And it pretty well always gives you the right answer. Well, okay. first of all, it's giving you the right answer because it was designed by an intelligence that was rational and was using reason. So now you've just made it worse for yourself because now you've not only got the free will argument, but a teleological argument piled on top of that. So good job with that. But um, but secondly, uh, the calculator can be right, even though it's deterministic. And if you're right, this is the pragmatism thing. it It could be the case that you could get to right conclusions. That's true. The problem is you could never know that you got to write conclusions um, you could never have justified knowledge claims and let's just say we gave you everything you want and said fine it works pragmatically that's good enough for you so go about your life okay, but now we're not talking about um, we're not talking about philosophy anymore we're not talking about um, the nature of God's existence or free will or anything. You're just kind of saying I don't care I'm going to do the best with what I've got So that's there's some thoughts there.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of great stuff there. Um, So let's go to the second argument. I do want to say we will answer any questions or super chats at the end. But uh, what's the second argument that you have for establishing that we would have some sort of libertarian freedom?
1: Yeah. So um, as I thought more, as I told you, I, I came to this argument thinking about William Lane Craig's moral argument. And the second premise of Craig's moral argument is that objective moral values and duties do exist. Well, as you know, a lot of people on the Internet, on YouTube, don't believe in objective moral values, and they'll tell you that people like skylar fiction that will just tell you that they don't believe in objective moral values in the sense that we mean it anyway. So, um, so how does he defend that? Well, the way he defends that is to say, all right, look, a good argument is an argument that has premises that are plausible. They're more like these premises are more likely to be true than false. That's what you want in a good argument. You know, Graham Oppy talks a lot about um, arguments, and what's the use of arguments, and what are we trying to do with arguments, and he does that in his book, Arguing About Gods, but then the other day um, when he debated Andrew Loki, I don't know if you saw that, but he in that debate, he said, before we begin talking about this, what's the point? Because if I'm not convinced by your premises, then what does it even matter? So yeah, there's something valuable there. Um, someone can disagree with a premise and just be wrong, or they can disagree with the premise and be right, but what we want in Premises of an Argument, is that they would be more likely to be true than, than false. Well, here's the thing I would say about morality and I would say about libertarian freedom, that the um, impulse that we have, that it's true. The intuition that we have, that it's true is so powerful, is so evident and so strong to us that it is stronger than any premise of any argument brought to defeat it. In other words, our intuition of it makes it more plausibly true than the premises of an argument that would be to show that it's false. And this is somewhat related to Richard Swinburne's um, uh, principle of incredulity that he uses with his argument from religious experience, which is to say something like this. This is my paraphrase of it is to say something like, if I have an intuition or an impulse inside of me, let's just say an intuition that um, it seems almost impossible to doubt almost, I won't say it's impossible to doubt because I'm not saying I have like absolute certainty, but if it seems almost impossible to doubt, then I am rationally justified in maintaining that belief until such a time as someone gives me a strong enough argument that I'm compelled to reject uh, that intuition. And to date, I don't think any argument has premises that are plausible enough to overcome the plausibility that's brought forth from my own intuition about morality and libertarian freedom. So that would be like a second reason to believe.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's great stuff there. I think that one of the more common objections you see to this is like, well, sometimes our intuitions could be wrong. You could say like, you know, 600 years ago, most people thought the earth was flat. And when Columbus was sailing to America, he was just going to sail off the edge of the earth and it was kind of be done. So maybe our intuitions may be helpful. Um, they're not always trustworthy. And they maybe argue that with free will as we find neuroscience and such, you know, eventually we're going to understand how this out actually works. Even, you know, our intuitions can be deceitful.
1: Yeah. So the first answer is the easiest one, which is to say, right. Our intuitions can be wrong. That's why I say, I'm not saying it's impossible to make me doubt libertarian freedom or morality. I'm saying that, um, it seems almost impossible to doubt. So I'm ready to doubt if someone gives me a good enough argument. Because that's what arguments are doing anyway. They're, they're meant to convince and, and to, uh, that reasonable people would change their mind. Um, uh, but at the same time, I don't think that uh, with that example of sailing off the edge of the world, that that's necessarily an intuition of the same order. Um, people don't necessarily, they're not, they don't have this innate intuition that the world is flat. That comes through observation. They look around and they see that it looks like, it looks to me like it's flat. You know, I mean, I, I, I do a few simple measurements and it seems to be flat. I go up on top of the mountain and it still seems to be kind of flat. I sail and it looks like there's a horizon that kind of looks like an edge that looks like it's flat. And they come to that conclusion. But I don't think that from a very young age, if they weren't told one thing or the other, that they would just have this intuition about it. They they observe and draw conclusions. Still, the point is still made that we do have, we we do kind of have intuitions about things, Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, but I'm sure we have intuitions that turn out to be false. Uh, but I'm happy to admit that I could be wrong, but someone would need to bring a strong enough argument to compel me that I'm wrong.
0: Mm, Fair enough. Uh, so what's this third and final argument that you have for establishing that we would have libertarian freedom?
1: So the third one is related to, to morality, and in fact, this is why I think that it's possible that this free will argument could actually do everything that Craig William Lane Craig wants his moral argument to do and more, because you've got all these other things that you get from free will, but you also get the morality thing, because um, if, um, if, if there is no libertarian freedom, then we are left with what I would refer to as moot morality. So let's just forget the fact that Christians and atheists always argue about whether and how morality can be objective or not, like whether it's subjective Mm -hmm. or objective. Let's just say that atheism can have objective morality. Let's just say they can. I don't think they can, but let's just say that they can. Okay. Well, even so, if determinism is true, whatever I end up doing, whether it's objectively good or objectively evil, I couldn't help it. Like literally, I couldn't help it. I was determined to do it, and it could not have been otherwise. And so you're left with moot morality. Morality becomes meaningless. Now you can still punish people um, in the sense that you can lock them up so they don't kill. Like if they killed someone, so they don't kill anybody else. You could do that. Sure, that's fine. But what you can't do is hold them morally culpable, morally responsible. Like that they, you know, you're you have no. Um, you have no justification for blame, for blaming them for whatever they end up doing. And in fact, it's very interesting because if you listen to, there's a backyard discussion that took place between Cosmic Skeptics, Alex O'Connor, and Rationality Rules, Stephen Woodford, in which they're talking about this. And uh, Alex says, but if what we're saying is true, doesn't that mean that if a man kills his family, that it's he's not really to be blamed for that in that sense? And there's no sense in being emotionally upset toward him. And I may be getting the, you know, I may be saying that not exactly the way they said it, but it's this, this the point. And he said, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's pro- that's how we should look at it. And there are people who are actually trying to work on um, how we should have a more sensible justice system that takes into account that that the universe made me do it and I couldn't I couldn't have changed it myself. But try that in court. The universe made me do it and see if you get away with murder. Does it's not it's not gonna work. And the reason it's not gonna work is because our justice system somewhat presupposes libertarian freedom. And I think that's because we some in some sense just recognize it as a feature of reality that that we have this um this uh libertarian freedom. So I, I think uh those are some things that have to do with it. The morality thing just kind of goes down the toilet if, if uh, if that's the case such that, and and at this point in American history, at least it's powerful to say this. And I did say it on unbelievable Christian radio and I'll say it again here. And I know that it sounds offensive, but I'm, I'm using a, a, something at the fringes of our emotions and logic because I want it to penetrate our thinking. Um, what, what was done to George Floyd was a horrible thing. I can say it was a morally reprehensible thing and that the people who did it should be blamed. But here's the thing about that. If you're a determinist, what you are forced to say is that that, those actions were determined. And though we may hold the people responsible, they're not morally culpable and they could not have done otherwise. In In other words, what happens when a racial hater does something like that Um, or someone is abusive toward women, or someone shoots up a gay nightclub, or whatever thing that happens, you have to, in some sense, look at the perpetrator. If determinism is true, which I don't hold to, you have to look at it and say, they couldn't help it. And if you're willing to say that, I've got some beachfront property in Tennessee I'd like to sell you.
0: (laughs) Beachfront property in Tennessee sounds pretty nice, especially right now, being in Pennsylvania, where we just got like two feet of snow. So
1: Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> so
0: um, I think that it's, it's very interesting. I remember you talking about this and unbelievable. And it's a, it's a very compelling argument. But I think uh, some people could look at this and say it's just arguing from consequences. Like we don't like the consequences of kind of having to say, well, yeah, this person who maybe like shot up a school, they had to do that. They couldn't have not done it. Um, but to just say then that we need to put free will into this is just kind of like arguing for from consequences. Um, So what do you think of that kind of like objection to this line of argument?
1: So it would be an argument from consequences and it would be fallacious if I was just saying that would be terrible, wouldn't it? So it can't be true because that would just be so terrible. But what I'm actually saying is you understand already that that's not the way it is. Intuitively, you know, that's not right. And when we look at the way that humanity functions, we have a whole anthropology that, that points in the direction that we all kind of recognize that, that that's not the way it is. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of pointing back to your intuitions about that again. But here's the thing. If someone has a problem with intuitions, the truth about it is that's what we have immediate access to. Anything you have to observe and draw conclusions from your observations is secondary in a certain sense, epistemologically speaking, but you have direct first-person access to your intuitions. And when we're talking about morality, uh, I think uh, Michael Jones just said this on our live stream last week, um, is that w- when we're talking about morality, we're talking about something that that is a feature of human thinking. It, it relates mm-hmm. to human thinking. The only way to study it. The only way to draw conclusions about morality really is to look within ourselves and look at culture at large and say, what does it seem, what seems to be the state of affairs? And I'm saying, when you do that, you find it, wait a minute, the justice system seems to presuppose libertarian freedom. Most justice systems, if not all do that. I certainly seem to have a strong intuition such that you even have people like Dan Barker writing a book in which he's defending whether he wants to call it a compatibilism or compatibilism. It's compatibilistic determinism. And he says about it, we still have the illusion of free will. So even he admits there's an illusion of free will. He just has to do that because of his worldview. So when all of human experience kind of seems to foster this belief and the only place we have to go to, to understand these moral truths is within our anthropology and within humanity, and it looks like the evidence there points to uh, libertarian freedom and that morality um, is an objective thing, and that it really is wrong to X, Y, and Z. I think that all of that kind of backs up the point.
0: Mm. Definitely. So we talked about like three uh, different arguments to establish have libertarian freedom, but I think it'd be useful to kind of tie this into God. Like why think that we need to have, if we have libertarian freedom, why think that it would kind of point to God or in, in your syllogism, we can only have libertarian freedom if God exists?
1: Yeah. So if God does not exist, then the universe is a closed system of causal relations. And even if it's not, and even if there is a multiverse that that stands outside of and sands our physical universe, at some point, it's a closed system of cause and effect. And so as a result, um, uh, what you, all you're going to get are these causal relations. And so you need something, you need something else. Now, the way I used to argue this is, so you need, you need something like a supernatural aspect to this. You need something that allows for us to break that system of, of, uh, physical causal relations and have an age and have something like agent causation. That is, um, not only hierarchical, which is something that comes up in the literature, but all, like hierarchical thinking is, um, you, you, you know, the first layer of thinking is you're going to say, well, I want some chocolate cake. But the hierarchy, then the second layer is I want the chocolate cake, but I want next year to be thinner than I am right now. And so you're, you're able to do hierarchical thinking that alone doesn't solve the problem. Um, but you need to have that, I think for sure. And that happens with intelligent, um, people, you know, rational agents like human beings. But then on top of that, I think you need something something else, a spark of, of something spiritual. That's why you get people like um, Tim Stratton and Eric Hernandez arguing for the soul uh, because they think the soul is, is the way to do this. I actually think there's another way now. Um, I spent the first half of this year studying quantum mechanics and trying to figure out, is there a naturalistic way we could have libertarian freedom? I was trying to challenge premise one of my own argument. And I came to believe that maybe there is, and I talked about this on Unbelievable very briefly. And I think that Robert Kane is a good example of someone who has provided a possible way. And um, Roger Penrose also, excuse me, Roger Penrose also has done work on something not directly related to free will, but but related to it. I know I'm kind of being unclear, but I'm hopefully this will clear it up. Mm-hmm. So um, in quantum mechanics, you have uh, this strange. Thing that happens that that we know happens now, and it's super weird. In fact, I've recently been saying whenever um, so, some atheist points at a Christian and says, "Oh, how can I believe this? You've got talking snakes and talking donkeys." I say, "Listen, you live in a world where quantum mechanics is happening. Don't talk <laughs> to me about things that seem impossible." <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, uh, with quantum mechanics, you have this you have this waveform that, upon measurement, w- when there's a measurement device placed there, it collapses into a specific location. And um, it seems somewhat indeterminate or random. Um, and so the, the but let's just go with indeterminate. It doesn't seem to be understood on Newtonian physics that would be more at home with determinism. It seems like something indeterminate is happening. And this is this is um, this is understood to be a, a realistic understanding among physicists today. Okay, so um, the question then becomes, if that's happening, Does that somehow play into this? And what Mm -hmm. you have with uh, Robert Kane is the suggestion, and we're not saying that we're dogmatic about this. What we're saying here is, if this is even possibly true, then it serves as a defeater to the claim that you couldn't have libertarian freedom on naturalism. So what we're going to say is, okay, if there is this thing that happens at the quantum level that's indeterminate, doesn't follow classical Newtonian determinism like that, Mm -hmm. then what if it is the case that that's going on in our brains? And then you go over to Roger Penrose, and Roger Penrose has this whole thing about um, microtubules and that that our brains might be quantum computers. And this is a very uh, popular topic of discussion among philosophers and physicists today. So the the, the thing that we have to, so the possibility is, okay, what if there is in our choices, in our decision-making, this element of indeterminism? this element of that, that breaks the determinism and allows for a free choice there. And so I came to believe, and there's more to say about this, but I think you may bring an objection. I'm going to see if you do. That will allow me to say more about it in a moment when we talk about randomness and indeterminacy. Mm-hmm. But if there's an element of indeterminacy in our thinking, in our decision-making, mm-hmm. then this um, could be the, the means by which we are able to make free will choices. And there's work being done on this by a number of different people, some of whom are not Christians uh, or theists. And so that's an interesting thing. Now, here's here's the thing, though. My premise one, if God does not exist, then libertarian freedom exists. Uh, I'm sorry, if God does not exist, then libertarian freedom does not exist. I think still holds because what I just described is so incredibly unlikely to happen on its own that it would be like, the greatest example of a design argument for God's existence on its own of any of any design argument we've ever thought of before. And so I would say it would still require God to be that specific. So obviously I don't expect people to that to be that clear to people. I can point them to a couple of things in the literature. One thing that I would point people to is uh, go look up uh, anywhere you can find where Roger Penrose has written about microtubules, you can also look at the chapter that Robert Kane has in the, um, uh, the the Oxford Handbook on Free Will, which is a great resource. And he goes through everything that I've just said. Also, for those that don't want to pay the sixty-something dollars or whatever it is for the book, um, there's actually a YouTube video of of Robert Kane, and it's like the only one he's in on YouTube, where he's giving basically that entire chapter and and just just verbatim. So you could go look that up maybe get a little more detail, but I'm also happy to go further into it now because it's super interesting to me.
0: Yeah. There's so much there. Um, And we'll, we'll get to some of the, like the randomness objection objection here in a second. Um, The word of quantum mechanics is just really weird. Um, I was reading the quantum enigma uh, over the, the school semester. And I'm like, the first time I ever really read about quantum mechanics, I'm like, this is crazy. Like I was talking with like my, one of my really good friends is studying physics at Wisconsin. And I was like, what do you think of all this? And he's like, it's just crazy. No one really knows what's happening with all this. So it's a lot of fun. Um, so yeah. We're go the, quantum,
1: into- the Quantum Enigma is the first book I read um, and I, on this issue. And I encourage people, it's an Oxford published book and it's fantastic and it's mind blowing. And you will come away with it thinking, okay, the world is as, it's like, let me say this real quick. Um, I, when I, I love the Narnia books um the mm, chronicles yeah. of narnia we read i read them with my kids when they were younger and um the voyage of the dawn treader um which there was a movie made about it but this scene is not in the movie where they're talking about um how in their world which is our world earth you know the human children are talking about in our world the world is round and um caspian i think it is is talking about how well no here in narnia it's a flat world you mean you live in a world that is round? You can walk all the way around and go to the bottom of it. And you're what are you upside down then? That's so whimsical and like like a cartoon, you know. And so when I think about certain features of the real world, like that, like that we are on a spherical earth and like that, my little dog. Indy is this cute little fuzzy creature that is like a Narnia man. He has personality. And when I think about near death experiences and stuff, we get the f- quantum mechanics. When people think the supernatural sounds ridiculous, just on the mm-hmm. face of it. I think, do you realize you live in a Narnia world right now? Do you get that?
0: <laughs> yeah this world is there's so much left to be discovered uh we'll go through some questions some objections some super chats we'll kind of mix it all in right now um first we have a super chat from the london theist dean thank you so much for your super chat really appreciate it he says of my favorite christian apologists together having a brilliant chat keep up the great work guys god bless thank you dean i just wanted to remind you that tottenham lost to liverpool yesterday um 2-1 so do you know? English, do you know English football at all, Braxton?
1: I know no football. I'm I don't pay attention <laughs> to any sports ball games.
0: You probably don't even know I'm talking about soccer right now. Actually, so. I,
1: I think well, I know that much. I <laughs> I know that they have soccer, and I know in Australia, okay. if there's any Australia listeners, they have a version of football that's like American football but follows different rules. And even most people in Australia don't know the rules. I know that much.
0: <laughs> that's. I feel like that's all you really need to know. Um, yeah. This was an objection I had kind of written up that um, is a perfect time to talk about it from writer John Buck says, hi, Braxy Poo. Um, how would you respond to the random subjection? Either an act is due to reasons or for no reason, uh, neither be due to an agent. Um, I, I looked it up a different way, someone phrasing the randomness objection and they just said, um, chance exists. If our actions are caused by chance, we lack control. We cannot call that free will because we cannot be held morally responsible for random actions. So there's different ways of phrasing the randomness ejection, but how do you respond to it um, in terms of this dialogue on free will?
1: Yeah. So I would actually say that we, what we do, we do do for reasons and we do do these things because of influences. The question is, do those reasons or those influences serve as causes that make us do the particular thing that we do, and so the, this is where I say, okay, now, now there's two ways to look at this. Obviously, I want people to look deeper into this issue with quantum mechanics, but let me make it. If you don't buy that, let me give you something that I think is just as good that works just as well. So the idea with quantum mechanics thing is that um, there's indeterminacy. So that so that say and this this is Robert Kane's example. So think about mm-hmm. this, and this deals with this objection. So imagine that you're walking, that a woman is walking down a road to a business meeting and she has to get there because she's going to get the promotion she's wanted her whole life. All her dreams are going to come true. She wants to get that promotion, but she has to be there on time and she's going to be late if she doesn't hurry. And as she passes an alleyway, she sees that there's a mugging happening in there. Now she has two competing desires here. The desire to do something about the mugging, like call 911 and wait and watch what happens or something, try to stop it herself. Maybe she's been taking some Tybo classes. I don't know. Or she can go on and and fulfill the other desire um, to to go to the business meeting. All right. Now, what Robert Kane posits is that possibly that in moments like this, there is this chaos in our thinking. Um, So that like when we're walking into a gas station and there's two doorways there, it may be somewhat deterministic which door we go through. We're not thinking that much about it. But in a moment like this with the woman, she has this, what do I really want to do? And this is the same sort of thinking that might come up when you have a decision about where do I want to eat dinner or who am I going to marry or where am I going to go to school? You have this real chaos in your brain where you don't even know for sure what you're going to do and you're thinking hard about it. And in such a moment, uh, this these things that are felt at the quantum level are experienced at the macro level of our decision making, and it and and the and this indeterminate thing, which we would call random, isn't the choice, but it's an ingredient, and that's the key. It's an ingredient in the decision-making process so that you have all these reasons and influences, and perhaps these reasons and influences would weigh on your desires like determinists think and cause you to do one thing or the other, except for this element of indeterminacy that's there that allows for the, as an ingredient, not as the whole ball of wax, but as an ingredient there allows you to choose one or the other. And if you don't like that being explained naturalistically with quantum mechanics, we'll just do it the same way that um, someone like Eric Hernandez and Tim Stratton would do it and say, uh, if God exists, God could bypass all this talk about quantum mechanics and gift you with that element of indeterminacy that allows for a free choice to be made. And so I think that that when I discovered that, I thought it was mind-blowing because this is one of the really big problems um, with, with free will that people see. And I understand why they have this problem, but I think that resolves the problem. And so what you're left with is, uh, we have reasons and we have influences, but those don't cause so that if the woman goes, if the woman ends up in going to the business meeting, or if she ends up helping solve the mugging, In both cases, if you ask her, why did you do that? It's not like she's going to say, I don't know, it's just random. She'll have reasons. She'll be able to tell you what her influences were and why she did it. But it wasn't determined. By definition, it wasn't determined because there was indeterminism in the process.
0: Mm thank you for that and thank you for your super chat um so kind of you writer john buck ethan also says i basically asked the same question as john buck but he won up me with a super chat great chat thank you for that ethan um and for the super chat as well really appreciate that so another objection that i've I've heard to the argument from free will is kind of relates to like what convinces us of a belief like i've heard cosmic skeptics say before like um he's a determinist and he would say I see the evidence um, that people present for like the existence of God or Christianity, and I'm just not convinced of it. And I can't freely choose to be convinced of it. I'm just not convinced. And you use that in part for like a case for determinism. Um, So in that sense, like how do you respond to like that kind of objection to an argument from free will?
1: So there are two things that come up when we talk about this, what they're describing is what's called direct doxastic voluntarism. And then there's indirect doxastic voluntarism, direct doxastic um, volunteerism is if I were to say, okay, I'm just going to choose to believe that behind me right now in my set is a pink elephant. Okay. And I can look around and I don't see one there, but so what I can just decide to believe it. Okay. Well, obviously I don't think we have that. Okay. I do actually think we can decide to believe it. I just don't think we can deliver to ourselves on that and actually believe it. So, so I get that and that's what they're talking about. But there is this other thing, indirect doxastic volunteerism. And what that means is when you think, okay, I see something that there could be some merit to it. So I'm going to put myself in a position where I open myself up intentionally to the possibility of it. And I begin to study the best of what this, uh, what the people that take this particular position have to offer. And I'm not going to just have these walls up. I'm going to really open myself up to it. And in fact, I want to believe it. So I'm going to I'm going to lean into it. And mm-hmm. you and because we're good at convincing ourselves of things, um, you can you can end up allowing that belief to arise naturally for you. And you chose to do that. You just weren't able to do it directly. You did it through a process. Um, Tim has a great analogy for this too. Um, he says, you know, when I first met my wife, I didn't love. Um, I, th- I think this is right. I didn't love her child initially right away. Um, uh, I-, I would like to choose to have those feelings of affection and love toward uh, this this person, but I couldn't just do that right away. But what I did was I chose to put myself in positions like I would go to baseball games with him or I would go out to eat with him or play video games with him or whatever, put myself in positions where that feeling of love would arise naturally. Did I choose to have those feelings? Yes, but I didn't choose to have them immediately and directly. I chose to have them through a process. And I think that's perfectly reasonable.
0: Mm. Uh, Another objection that we'll hear is our choices can reduce down to neuroscience Um, This is kind of gets into like the whole like physicalism debate um, regarding philosophy of mind. But they'll say, you know, we can just detect our choices through neuroscience and, you know, our consciousness comes from the brain. So obviously a whole different thing we're talking about here. But like, how would you respond to that kind of objection that like our choices can be reduced down to neuroscience?
1: So I would recommend a book for people that have that uh, objection by Alfred Mele. And this book by Alfred Mele is called uh, Free, How Science Has Not Disproven Free Will. And um, I don't even know if this guy, I don't, I don't know that this guy's a Christian. I have no reason to believe that he is. Um, but he wrote this book. And the, and the point was, these things are all based on things like what are called the Libet experiments. So there's been other experiments, but the Libet experiments are by far the most famous. And um, if anyone out there has YouTube premium, there's a show called Mind Field. And uh, in which this guy um, talks about modern iterations of the Libet experiment and the way they work is, they put two boxes in front of a person. This is not how Libet did it, but this is the modern variation. Put two boxes in front of someone with buttons on each one and a light above each one and put electrodes on people's brains and um, tell the person, don't think too much about when or which of these two buttons you're going to push. Just push one whenever. Just try even not to think about it and then just push one. And so they, they go to push one and the light above the box of the button they're about to push comes on like a half a second before they push the button. It, it read their their neural uh, you know electricity and knew, knew the machine knew, um, which button they were going to push before they were even necessarily consciously aware of it. And so people point to exp- uh, experiments like this and say, look, we've already proven that free will doesn't exist. You'll hear these big bombastic claims all the time. We've already proven it doesn't exist because um, of of the Libet experiments and things like them. There's a couple of problems with this. Um, Number one, I don't think the Libet experiments prove what they think they prove because number one, they're telling the person, don't think about which thing you're going to do. In other words, try not to choose, try to be random. Okay, So don't be surprised if they then are more or less random. And secondly, they are still in some sense making a choice, but it's the difference between picking and choosing. Uh, That's the language that's used about this, picking and choosing. So picking is like, which door am I going to walk through of a double door when I go into the gas station? I'm just kind of picking, but where am I going to go for dinner? No, I'm choosing that. I'm thinking hard about that. Okay. So, so when, so even if you were to demonstrate that a few seconds or a half a second before or something, that we can look at your neural electricity and know what you're going to pick which is just a flick of your muscle um that doesn't it's a broad leap to then say therefore all of your choices are determined in that same way actually what people like me say is it may well be that much of the time when we're just picking we are running on something like determinism but mm-hmm. there are moments where we make real decisions serious decisions and that is where uh, libertarian freedom would come in. And all of these um, limit experiments have these and experiments like them have these same problems. And uh, so, so I think that uh, takes care of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, JMD apologetic says, uh, how does Braxton answer the luck objection to libertarian free will, um, which applies to a, a strong principle, of sufficient reason uh, to libertarian free will? I've heard um, atheists like Oppie that would say that like libertarian freedom would undermine like whatever beings exist have a cause. So kind of similar to that, but like, what's your thoughts, Braxton?
1: Yeah. So we're talking, we're not talking about persons when we're talking about uh, those causal relations, like with the Kalam cosmological argument, we're talking about um, the existence of physical things, not concepts like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so I don't think it does cause a problem for it. And I've even heard William Lane Craig say as much. Interestingly with the Kalam, I actually think the Kalam establishes libertarian freedom. And sometimes I use it um, in a, if, if someone thinks there's value in the Kalam, it helps with premise two of my free will argument, because here's the thing. If, if, um, if we go through the whole Kalam and through the conceptual analysis that comes after the Kalam to get to the point where we have, okay, the cause of the physical universe is a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise mind. One of the reasons we know that it's a mind is because whatever stands as the cause of the physical universe would have to be, if it's spaceless and timeless and non-material, it would have to have libertarian freedom for the following reason. There wasn't anything else and no time for anything else to happen to lead to a cause deterministically. And there was nothing happening and no time for it to happen within for us to have randomness. And so you would just have to have a libertarian choice. And so uh, I think that the Kalam gives you libertarianism to the point that even with Calvinist Christians like Chris Date who are determinists and will tell you they're determinists, Chris Date on on our show was willing to say, no, I don't think libertarian freedom is off the table for God because of that very reasoning. So if someone wants to object to libertarian freedom because they just think it's not a thing in concept, well, if you think the Kalam is successful, if you're a Christian or a theist and think the Kalam is successful— you already, I think, must believe in libertarian freedom because that first cause would have to have it. Then the question only becomes, do we have it or not? And so looping back around to the question, I don't think it's a problem because we're not talking about things like choices. We're talking about the coming into existence of beings and entities and things.
0: Mm. Uh, We'll have one more question here as we're starting to run out of time and then we'll start to head our way out. Uh, Jose Martinez says, kind of a good way to kind of wrap this up is, he says, if an atheist affirms free will, isn't that inconsistent with naturalism? I could hear a skeptic saying, okay, Braxton, you know, maybe there are some good arguments for free will, but I don't think it gets you to God. Um, so what would you think of an atheist affirming free will and its consistency with naturalism? Uh,
1: I, I know why he says that, and I used to say that, and I think it would be really, really weird. It, it would sit really, really weird on their worldview. Um, yeah. But they could say, some. here's the only way that, out for them. Is they could that I know of that I can imagine. Let me put it that way. I mean, they could just play naturalism with gaps and say, maybe we have free will and we just don't know how, but later on down the line, science and the lab coat priesthood will will deliver it to us. But um, but but the only way I know that they have out of that is to say our brains are quantum machines, quantum computers, and they inject that indeterminacy. But there again, I think they're in a real tough spot because that would be that would mean the like the greatest design for human brains to be able to make libertarian choices like ever. And so, Oh, and another good reason I didn't mention earlier for why God makes the best sense of our having libertarian freedom. If you grant that we have it is that libertarian freedom gives you several things. What did, I tried to write down what, what all do we get if libertarian freedom is true. Well, we get the ability to make rational affirmations. We've said that. We get a robust, meaningful morality. We've said that. We get love. I think the, the highest understanding of love comes with free will. And we get pure altruism. It's the only way you get things that are legitimately and really done purely selflessly. Most things, even like a woman pushing her child out out, of, out from being hit by a car, I think that might be really purely selfless, but someone could say, well, in some sense, she wanted to be a good mother or think of herself as a good mother or something like that. But I think if libertarian freedom is true, you could have pure altruism, pure selflessness, because um, you're not doing just what you most desire. You could choose against what you most desire because your desires are influences, but not necessarily causes. And when you look at those four things, Uh, rationality, morality, love, and pure selflessness, pure altruism. Those are all things that are important for relationships. And the Bible happens to tell us that what God wants most is that we have these relationships and love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. I think God makes the best sense out of the teleology, the design that seems to be there with our free will. So I think in some, a naturalist could affirm free will, but they would affirm it um, at their peril because then they're granting I think the greatest design argument conceivable.
0: <laughs> uh, lots of great stuff, Braxton. Thank you uh, so much for your time. Is there any like last thoughts, things you didn't get to say that you want to kind of bring up before we wrap things up here?
1: I don't think so. I'll just say that I really appreciate channels like yours. And I'm glad that we've got young apologists out there doing this as I will in a few days turn 40 and no longer will be a younger person. <laughs> and uh, so- You, so have you out. out
0: yourself there.
1: Yeah, I know. But, um, the gray in my beard will get there eventually. But, uh, but, but anyway, um, no, and I would encourage people if you want to, it it doesn't cost you much. We work with people, um, on this. If you want to become a a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, we have a program for apologetics. We have several apologetics programs at each degree level, and you can learn from professors like me and Jonathan Pritchett and Tim Stratton and Chris Date and Leighton Flowers, and Steve Gregg, and why wouldn't you want to do something? Chris Featherstone, why wouldn't you want to do that? So um, I I hope you will, and you can do that by going to trinitysem.edu. And if you don't do anything else, uh, subscribe to this channel, and then go subscribe to Trinity Radio, all right? So that's what I would say.
0: Thank you so much, Braxton. I would encourage everyone. um, We're going to get Trinity Radio to 20,000 subscribers by the end of the day. um, So I'd encourage you to help us reach that goal so you can go subscribe to Trinity Radio. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Um, Roxby, the programmer, SJ, everyone else who was here, um, everyone who gave a super chat, Dean in Spartan Theology and John Buck, really appreciate that at all. You guys, as, oh my gosh, I can't talk to you guys as well. Your support means a lot to me. And if you enjoy us, just be sure to subscribe on your way out. Uh, thank you so much for your time, everyone.
1: I hope you have a good day. Uh, thank you for joining me, Braxton, and God bless everyone.